It's the first Monday of the month. Your questions, our responses, and lots of resources. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 208. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And our commitment to you, our audience, is once a month to open up the lines and to tackle questions that have come in in the last few weeks. And uh, just about every month, Bonnie joins me here in the studio to tackle questions. And if this is your first time listening to the Q&A show, the first Monday of the month, you can submit questions to us at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And Bonnie, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. I didn't tell you this story yesterday because we didn't get to catch up too much. I, it's my long day at work, long day of teaching. And as you already know, I get home from all of that and just lay down and don't want to talk to anyone after that because I've been talking all day. Anyway, the students in my sales class, I teach college for those of you who haven't been listening for a while. And we, we went and walked on this beautiful area in Newport Beach called Back Bay. And we listened to the Daniel Pink episode on to sell is human, because so many of them won't actually go into sales. And or they don't realize that they're going to go into sales. So they, I, I tend to approach the class as if we're all going into sales. Mm. I, fo- I found it so funny. First of all, they loved the episode. And I listened to it again. I think it's something like the 10th time I've listened to it. And it really stands the test of time and is a great episode. But the thing that cracked me up is that we're walking along because I had them each wear headphones and they downloaded it to their phone. And then so it's kind of like we're walking alone, even though we're, we're walking with just a small group of people. And I broke them up so they didn't necessarily know the people they're walking with too well. Anyway, all of a sudden this guy's like, was that you in the beginning when it goes produced by Innovate Learning or whatever it is when I say? And I'm just cracking up because I'm going... Well, yeah, it was me, but actually I'm on the show a lot more. Once a month, I say more than just, you know, seven words or whatever it is. That's awesome. I remember when we did that, it was like four years ago. It was just kind of like one of those random, random kind of afterthought things. And it has stood the test of time, speaking things that stand Mm -hmm. the test of time. I think that was episode 84 with Daniel Pink. So I'll put a link into the show notes. And I just heard an interview with him actually the same day your students did a new one. And, uh, He's always got such great stuff out there. So if you're looking for a good book to read, anything by Daniel Pink is absolutely a great place to start. And speaking of uh, places to start, Bonnie, we have lots of questions here. Hopefully we'll get to all of them today. And the first question is from Jenga, and it comes from across the world. Hello, Dave. How are you? Um, I am Jenga Largo, and I'm calling from Manila, Philippines. I have been listening to your podcast for the past few weeks now and found it really insightful and helpful, so thank you so much. I am I'm pretty new in the leadership role, and uh, listening to you regularly has given me really great confidence, and I'm learning so much. I also love your um, collaboration with Bonnie. And thank you both so much for sharing your wisdom. Um, I do have a question. I was recently promoted and leading a group of 13, uh, which has an average tenure of 10 years. And one of 
my goal is to be able to motivate this group into performing better. I do want to mention um, that the, the company has been – so I have a question about motivation, actually, but uh, before asking the question, I, it might be helpful to mention that the company has been gen generous in terms of um, financial motivation. We have yearly salary increase and bonuses and employee engagement programs are in place. But uh, being with the group for several years, um, I know and I have observed that uh, most of the uh, individuals are just not highly motivated. And I use the word no because we recently just had our annual performance review and it involved several steps and one of them is self-assessment and uh, some individuals ranked their self-motivation fairly low which is, as you can imagine, um, really concerning. So my questions are, um, what are the motivating tools that usually work? Um, when I asked one of the individuals uh, who assessed uh, her self-motivation low, what gets her motivated, she considered it a moment and quite hesitantly replied that she was thinking about it, which gives me an impression that she doesn't know it yet. So how can I help her and others get motivated? So, yeah, uh, thank you so much. I would be grateful for any tips that you can share. Well, Jenga, thank you so much for the question. And it, it's, it sounds like you very much are thinking and caring about the people that you're working with. And that's just such a wonderful place to start and also have done some work to think through what's what's going on in the situation. And it's interesting that Bonnie brought up the Daniel Pink episode. I didn't know you were going to mention that in context of this question. And actually, one of my continual recommendations, a book that I love, is the book Drive by Daniel Pink. Uh, it, it really zeroes in on him looking at the research of motivation and how do you motivate people in teams of people. And he highlights three key principles in that book. If you're not familiar with it, I would definitely check it out. So I'll put a link in the show notes, but the book's called Drive by Daniel Pink. Um, but broadly, I also think of the quote from Dale Carnegie, which is the only way to influence someone is to find out what they want and to show them how to get it. And so I think you are very right to to realize that even though your organization has all of the uh, programs in place and the financial incentives and all those kinds of things that at the end of the day we're always we're always when we're talking about motivation we're always talking about human beings. And so how at a human level do we find out what people really want and what's important to them? And that's going to that's gonna be different for every person. But one thing that is absolutely true is everyone has motivations. And so those motivations, while different and diverse, we all have them. And we may not necessarily always be completely aware of them. But there are motivations there that if you're able to learn about and connect with will help you to figure out what's the best way that you can motivate the people you're working with. And so one of those things is by just taking the time to engage and asking questions. So you're already starting to think about this because you're having conversation with people. And I think it's it's a hard question to ask someone what motivates you because a lot of people don't really know how to answer that. And even if they do know how to answer it, they don't necessarily always know it's safe to answer that question. And so I think you can ask a lot of other questions and have regular observations with people that maybe are questions that 
are a little softer or a little bit more on the rapport building side, but just based on how people interact and what's important to them and what they talk about in conversation, you can start to draw some conclusions. And probably the best format uh, that I know of that is a, it's a process we teach at Dale Carnegie actually called interviewing, not interviewing, interviewing. And um, I walked through it on a Carnegie coach episode uh, uh, probably about a year ago. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that. It's at carnegiecoach.com slash 39. And I walked through with one of my colleagues how to actually go through the process of asking people uh, questions, not questions like, you know, what motivates you, but questions that will help you to ultimately to determine that. And then the thing I'd say after that is once you start to get a sense of that is then I think one of the key jobs of a good leader is to look at what the organization needs, look at what um, what the, the person is wanting to get out of their career and their position, and then to be able to bridge the gap between those things is to help people make the connection and to see the connection long-term of how does the organization benefit, how do they benefit, and and you're in that unique position to be able to see how those things connect in a pretty substantial way. Bonnie, anything to add to that? I used to work with a woman who did not have a college degree. She reported to me, and she was in a human resources management position. And we talked a couple of times about the lack of college degree, and there was absolutely no interest whatsoever in ever in her life pursuing and completing that four-year degree, which here in America, that's a pretty unusual thing to have a professional level job, especially this woman, I mean, consummate professional had been doing it for decades. It is unusual that someone would not have completed a four-year bachelor's degree here and, and have attained that level and and then not have some plan to finish it because you, you'd have sort of stunted growth because of it. And it would always be sort of this gap in your resume. And she taught me so much through knowing her because she is still today. And this is, this is more than a decade later w- among a handful of the best human resources professionals I have ever worked with. I mean, absolutely an incredible person to get to be a part of a team with and it cracked me up, though, because I in, ultimately, I would describe her even still today as having low motivation. She doesn't want to move up. She doesn't, there aren't, she doesn't have a giant bucket list of things that she wants to accomplish as far as going and getting additional education or things like that. She's among the best, though. It's, it's sort of an odd thing. And I think about one of the reasons why she's so good is her stability. So what I might view as a lack of motivation, you could also view as just a really stable person. And she has in her career worked through some enormous tragedies, including a workplace shooting where she had to go and be among the people in the department who had survived and and then working with the families of people who hadn't survived. I mean, so having a person who's just incredibly stable and steady was so important to that organization at the time. And I saw it even in less dramatic ways in the organization that she worked with and me. But I mean, just all all sorts of things with employee investigations, just her sense of maturity and calmness and discernment and objectivity was incredible. But again, I would say, not a terribly motivated person in this in this sense of which most of us might consider that word. I just mentioned that just I think it's helpful, at least for me, it's been helpful in my career to recognize the value that other people can bring in organizations who don't have what I would consider to be high levels of motivation. And, and perhaps that might be helpful to you in framing some of these individuals in a different way. 
I would echo everything you said because when I started working at Dale Carnegie, Bonnie, that was one thing I had to learn is I made the assumption initially in my career with clients that everyone wanted to move up and get to the next position. And turns out a lot of people don't, especially in the client organizations we work with. They're a lot of times very technical oriented. People are very happy doing what they're doing, but they're still very motivated people, just not in the way that I traditionally thought about motivation. So, so Jenga, I hope that is helpful to you and gives you some thoughts on how you might approach uh, that situation and some resources to look at. This next question is from Tyler. How do you get off the phone with someone who's long-winded, Good old boy. My analysts each work with lots of sales reps and many accounts. We have a few sales reps who like to call every day, and invariably the call ends up being 15 to 25 minutes. A lot of drawn out, slow responses, talking about the news, small talk, before they want to get down to business. This is really an essential part of the local culture, but my team doesn't have time for it. If every rep did that every day, we'd have to work 16 hours a day, just to get off the phones. Any ideas? I cracked up when I read your message, Tyler, because just I think it was last night or the night before I watched on a, a very humorously named blog, I find it humorously, The Art of Manliness. And it stuck out to me. And it turns out Dave was actually featured in The Art of Manliness, which I mean, of course, I would know he would be. But that's, <laughs> where else would you look for me online? That's where I had heard the name before a blog. And they also do some humorous videos, but also that have great content. And I have asked Dave to put in the show notes a link to a video that answers your question precisely it doesn't talk about over the phone specifically but all of the techniques that they describe in this video would be very applicable to an over the phone conversation not just an in-person one and it's it makes you chuckle throughout but it has definitely a flow of some key actions that you can take you might consider showing the video to your team and then talking about how people might want to tweak that to fit your culture and to fit being over the phone and to make sure you're still giving superior service well you know making sure that you're keeping to more product productive conversations. And anyway, it'd be a great, great tool for you to show to your team. That's awesome. I have not yet seen this video, but I will put it in the show notes and thanks for sending me the link. And uh, yeah, the only other thing I'd add to that, Tyler, is, uh, you know, one of the things I learned this, this not so much on the, a little bit on the long winded piece, but one of the skills I learned as a Dale Carnegie instructor, uh, when someone's talking a lot in the classroom is, is the reminder from someone that everyone has to breathe at some point. So if you would ever do have to interrupt someone or move the conversation along, uh, wait for them to breathe and then you can ask the next question or that helps to move the conversation along. And that sort of seems like obvious advice, but I found that in the moment to actually be really helpful uh, in, a, in a number of occasions over the years where someone's just talking, 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 and they stop to take a breath. And that is a, a natural point to interrupt a conversation if you need to. The other thing that just strikes me about the numbers of people you're talking about and large teams and reaching out with lots of contacts is also what's some of this that maybe could be automated. And one of the things that we think about in our workplace is um, the concept of let's automate the things that we can automate so that we can spend more time doing the things that we shouldn't automate. And so I'm wondering if some of these regular contacts, if things like email or webinars or other things that are a little bit more scalable, may be an opportunity so that when you do make the calls and spend the time to do the cultural things that are necessary in that part of the country, is that you are able to minimize how much of that time you need to spend as an organization doing that. So I think to the extent you can find some opportunity to do that, if you're not already doing that as an organization, might be a good way to tackle that too. 
I'm cracking up because before Dave pressed record, he told me I was breathing too much. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, I, I have to breathe sometimes. It was in rel- relation to the microphone, but it just, it just cracks me up because I was thinking, not everybody breathes, not anymore. It's awesome. Next question is from Roger. I'm a trainer in a corporation that just went through an acquisition. My manager has assured me that he likes training and will keep this position for the foreseeable future. He's asked me about my future plans. My answer was that I love the role I'm in, but I would like to make it grow into a manager position since my duties vary, especially now. My current project may take a few years. At the same time, I'm very engaged with my home facility, trying to create and be a part of any new systems or leadership training for my local regional team. Any advice from you and Bonnie? These are areas I think I want to grow in and need to help achieve more entrepreneurial focused activities. And he has three areas of focus, Dave. One is to remain a crucial component to the company in the current training role to evolve the role into mentoring, technical and future training opportunities. And number three, create a manager position to grow into. I don't have any specific training credentials or graduate degrees, just 20 plus years of service in various capacities. Which is huge, by the way, perhaps even more valuable to you than the graduate degree or the certifications because you have the industry experience and the you know the people involved. And especially since there's been a big change in your organization recently, uh, that's something that is of real value to you and your organization. So if you've, if you've had any thought to discount that, I would certainly encourage you to see that as a real strong asset. To the value that you offer. So um, a few thoughts come up to me for this. Um, one of them is, is some of the things you're thinking about how you might do things differently. And then also the thought of creating a manager role out of this. Um, so I'm wondering what's the driving factor for you for creating a manager role that's kind of more of a logistical thing. And I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of things that you really are wanting out of a manager role? Is it is it you want the opportunity to supervise people? Is it that you want the opportunity to make more money, have more authority in the organization, grow your career? So one of the things that I'm really curious about, and I don't hear from this question, is what is what is it you really want? What's your driving desire of what you want out of your career? Because if you're thinking about doing something that's more entrepreneurial and affecting change. I'm not sure moving into a management role is necessarily the way to do that, especially in a lot of large organizations. Um, you tend to get caught up more in some of the bureaucracy and, and, and things tend to become a little bit more structured as far as how you're going to handle things. Um, I almost look at those as two different things. And and I guess if, if I was thinking about how do I be entrepreneurial in a large organization, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is where are their problems? So where is there a problem out there right now or problems that you could bring your experience and you could leverage the relationships that you already have in the organization to solve those problems that result in real cost savings, revenue, efficiency for the organization? And so a great starting point is think, looking at your organization's strategic plan and where the pain points are right now and what are the numbers people are trying to move. And then start looking around and figuring out where are the opportunities to do that. And if you look at a lot of the senior leaders in many large organizations, they're often people that have solved problems. 
They've had courage to take on a problem of some significance. They've moved numbers for the company. And I think that that's really a great opportunity, especially in a time of change, to start looking at where you could add value in that way. And then maybe you create that new role and that opportunity for you and for the organization. And so that's that's something I'd certainly encourage you to look at if you haven't already. Bonnie? One other suggestion would be that the more when you're working on a project that you're able to demonstrate project management skills, meeting management skills, those are a couple of things that managers often don't do well. And if you can start to show yourself as someone who shines in that, and particularly with project management, as Dave said, measuring those milestones along the way, being able to communicate visually and quantitatively with other people about the progress on a project you're working on, really showing yourself to shine in those areas can make you someone who's thought of in management roles in the future. So thanks so much for the question. Let's move on to this next question from Phil. And this one came in by audio. Hi, Dave. Hope all is well. Uh, Brilliant podcast as always. Uh, Quick question for you. Uh, I've recently been given the opportunity to do some mentoring with my company. Um, And it's specifically mentoring former armed forces personnel and helping them get to jobs in the civilian world and adapt to the civilian world. Now, I must admit, I'm quite nervous about this because I've never done anything like this before. I've never done any mentoring either. I was just wondering if there's any advice you could give me or any uh, books I could read upon or articles or if anything that Dale Carnegie could suggest that, uh, to help me come over, you know, overcome my nervousness and also to uh, provide the best possible mentoring for these, for these men and women. Thanks very much, Dave. Take care. Well, Phil, thank you so much for the question. And so two parts of this question, one on mentoring, what are some of the resources and and, uh, articles that we might have around that? I'm actually going to put a link in the show notes. There's two or three articles that I've come across recently that I think are just fabulous as far as looking at mentoring. And I believe that I'm, I'm thinking I wrote something about in the last six months, something on mentoring as well, too. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. So that'll be in the show notes. And for those of you get the, the leadership guide on Wednesdays, that'll be in there. So you can check those out, Phil. And then the other part of your question is specifically how to serve veterans effectively. And, um, you know, I think I'm thinking back to the conversation with Tom Henschel earlier this year on coaching and how to really coach people well. And the beginning of that, of your effectiveness at being able to mentor and to coach is being able to meet people where they are and understand where they are. So I think one of the the things you mentioned is that you have some some nervousness and just not being familiar as much, it sounds like, with this population of veterans. Um, I would I would see if you can find as many opportunities, or at least a few opportunities, to understand the culture of the veterans that you're working with and be able to um, educate yourself about where they're coming from. And this is, I have a couple of suggestions, but this is someplace that I'd actually like to open this up to the Coaching for Leaders community for some additional uh, feedback, because I know we have many members of the military and former military who listen to the show. So I'm hoping that a few folks will hop onto the show notes here and actually add in a few suggestions of what are some good ways to do that to really get a sense of what it's like to come out of a military culture and transition into civilian life. And um, a couple of resources that I just found doing a quick search, and one of the things I always look for these days is anytime I'm trying to learn something about there, is there a podcast out there? And sure enough, I looked on iTunes and there's a podcast called Transitioning Vets 
by Bill Nowicki. So um, it, there's four or five episodes up there. It looks like it's very highly rated. I haven't listened to it, uh, but that might be a place to start just to see if you can understand a little bit more about that transition that, that veterans go through. Um, there's a number of organizations that do this, and there's a book recommendation I actually have as well, too, from a former colleague of mine at Dale Carnegie, uh, who has a family member who wrote a very popular book on veterans transitioning. And I cannot for the life of me find the book reference at the moment we're recording this. So we looked beforehand. I will find it and I will put it in the show notes too. Um, one thing I will say, and having not worked with this population myself, but having talked to other coaches who have, is one big challenge that veterans have of transitioning from the military into civilian life is the military is by necessity and culture a very structured environment. Um, you know, when you get up, when you go to sleep, uh, what you do, what you do next in your career, what process you follow. And not all, but many veterans do struggle with that going back into civilian life is all of a sudden being in a culture or business culture where things aren't as structured, uh, is, you know, there's not a clear path on what to do next in order to network or find the next opportunity or, um, identify relationships that are going to help move you in your career. And so that is something that I know a lot of veterans do struggle with. So those are the kinds of things you probably want to be listening for as you're starting to work with this population. Hopefully a few folks will add in uh, some suggestions too. Bonnie, uh, anything coming to mind for you as well? I now in my university teaching, I'm doing a lot more mentoring of veterans than I ever have before. Our demographics are changing a bit at our university, and that's opening up those opportunities for me. And I would say two additions to Dave's common themes that you see in working with veterans. One is helping them take the skills that they've acquired through this great experience that they have gained in their service and helping them translate that to business language to key competencies and just helping them be able to articulate because speaking in the competencies from the military are, are that's not going to resonate quite as highly if they don't adapt the language to more of a business context. That's a big way that your mentoring could help them be able to do that, to shape their language and tell their narrative in a compelling way for a business audience. It's all about thinking about what the other person's looking for versus describing what I'm looking for. And the second thing is really just, I, I would say this for any mentoring experience, but I found specifically as I was reflecting on my experience mentoring veterans is just building up those trust-based relationships. There's one young man who I've really grown to be quite fond of, and, and he has really long hair. He has really, really long hair. It's got a, the classic, you know, they made me keep my hair cut so short for so long. And now this is my time in life to do that. Well, at the same time, he's also looking for jobs more of an, in a professional context. And we've had those conversations and I, and I've gotten to know him well enough that I can just say, all right, so let's talk about this. You, you realize you're making a choice and cutting yourself off from whatever percentage of the population that's going to be biased against hiring someone in a professional job who has long hair. That's not everyone in the business world, but that's a some percentage of the business world. And so what's it worth to you? <laughs> Is it worth it to you? Because if that sense of freedom or whatever, then hey, just recognize you're making that choice. Anyway, long story short, he was just going to keep it long until he got married. And then he was going to get real. <laughs> just in case you're, I haven't seen him yet. It'd be funny actually when the next time I see him, because I think he actually might have gotten married a month ago. Come to think of it, I'll have to check in with him and see how, how his hair is so doing. Just look online and see if his most recent photo is uh, short hair. Right. I should. Then I'd, you'll know. 
<laughs> then I will know. Yes. At any rate, those are a couple of things that come to mind with working with veterans. But I also wanted to say before we close your question that I completely relate to that sense of nervousness and inadequacy. And I think sometimes that can be a healthy thing. Sometimes I think that can help the other person just know how much you regard them and their service that they have had to your country. In this particular instance, this young man, he had spent two years in Afghanistan. I mean, right. I mean, in, in very dangerous situations and had some lasting health impact from, from those experiences. And and we chuckle sometimes as he'd be sitting in classes and someone's complaining about the food in the cafeteria. And he's like, really, (laughs) that's what we're worried about. So I think sometimes our nervousness can just translate into a deep high regard for another person and what they've contributed. Well said. The next question comes from Shannon. She says, I'm struggling with a boss whose management style is ad hoc-cratic, which as a side note is the first time I've ever heard that, that word. I, I, so I, I did. Like, it did highlight it on spell check. And I was thinking, is that <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, I think ad, she's coined a new term. Yes, ad hoc-cratic. I like it. In addition, she values relationships, but is not timely and thorough in her inner office communication. She's often slow to follow through. This has delayed work and caused much tension and poor communication with our senior leadership. One senior leader says she holds me equally responsible, though this seems completely unfair given the power dynamics and balance of responsibility, especially when it comes to managing the work of other staff. I've taken on much responsibility to compensate, but I'm afraid that I can't do both of our jobs in the long term. I have two young children and 90-hour work weeks are not possible. Without additional staff, I would burn out and the timeliness and quality of the work might be compromised. How do I manage up in this situation. Let me start by saying you are in a difficult situation and you're in a difficult situation. I recently heard a speaker talk about a type of therapy, which is called family systems therapy and family systems therapy. Basically, if you were to go see a therapist who practiced this way, would talk about that. You don't just look at individuals. You think about the relationships that these individuals are in and how those dynamics play out that you can't just study an individual. You have to study the entire system or in that case, the entire family. Well, family systems therapy, the ideas and some principles behind that have been brought over into the business world. Organizational psychologists have embraced some of those principles and ideas and approaches. One of the common things that comes up when talking about family systems is called triangulating. Triangulating is when I go to a friend of mine and start complaining about something about Dave. Dave is not there. (laughs) The conversation shouldn't be happening with a friend. It's triangulating. It's forming a triangle and bringing someone who doesn't have any real need to be in this conversation And you see that, of course, a ton in families. I joke with my mom all the time because my poor mom is like the one who winds up having to, around family engagements, like, oh, what time are we meeting? Like, it's always, everything's funneling through her as that form of triangulation. She survived, though. I mean, she's she's a trooper. (laughs) She's she's doing all right. But yeah, that's, that's an often thing that we can think of as happening in our families. Well, they happen in the workplace, too. And it sounds like they might be happening a bit with you. Here you have a senior leader who should be speaking to the person who in the hierarchy is ultimately accountable for what happens in the organization, but instead is talking to you and creating more of a triangular kind of communication. That is ill-advised, 
but it happens all the time. And my biggest advice to you is to try to stay out of triangular kinds of conversations whenever possible. And you can often do it with, oh gosh, well, I think that so-and-so would want to hear about this. Let's get her engaged. And just constantly, you're not, I would not suggest saying, I am not going to gossip or I'm not going to conduct this conversation. You're not going to get on your high horse. You're going to instead invite the person into the conversation, invite the person who's bringing it up with you to have the conversation with the other person so you can minimize those triangular relationships that are so dangerous to do. I tend to, in these situations, when I am at my best, which I am not at my best 100% of the time, but when I'm at my best, I tend to think about what are the things that I could control What are the things I can influence and try not to spend a lot of my time and energy on things that I can't control or influence. There's going to be some part of this relationship that you have with this manager that's going to be outside of your scope of influence or scope of control. However, as you think about your own influence and you think about how you can adapt your thinking on it, recognize that there are people who are more oriented toward relationships in leadership roles And there are people who are more oriented toward tasks in leadership roles. And if this woman, you said she values relationships, but if she's also good at relationships, you have an opportunity to start leveraging her ability to build relationships so that some of the tasks can be focused on and let her manage some of the relationships if that's indeed a strength of hers. And yes, when we get too far in either direction, too focused on the tasks or too focused on the relationships, we're out of balance and we're not at our best as leaders. But if we're smart as leaders, we bring other people onto our team who are the opposite of our weaknesses. They have the strengths where we have more weaknesses. And that might be something you could think about trying to leverage with her. Dave, what do you have to suggest? Gosh, I've so many great things you said there. I I guess the only two things I'd add to that is that one is we ultimately teach people how to treat us. And so objections aside, your feelings aside, if you are taking up her workload and doing the things that she should be doing and you've decided to do that, um, what you've taught your organization, the people around you, your senior leadership team is that you're willing to do that. And if that's the lesson you want to communicate to people, that's okay, but it sounds like it's not. So um, you're now in a difficult place, of course, as you know, because you're, you're going to have to reframe people's expectations. So one, um, one piece of this is also just deciding for yourself, what are you willing to do? what in the short term and also the long term and what are some of the boundaries that you need to put in there Um, you mentioned specifically working a number of hours a week so one place to start thinking about this is you know how many hours is realistic for you to work right now given your family and your happiness and all the other things you want to do and decide what it is what is it you can do during that time frame that's appropriate and reasonable for your job and then also what are the things that are going to that are going to keep you from doing that. And then to have a conversation with one of those senior leaders about that and to say, you know, here's, here's what I'm willing to do. I am proactively going to handle this in the 60 hours or however many hours you decide that's going to be. And here's what I'm not going to be able to do. Here's the commitments that I cannot keep that I've, I've kept up to this point, but I'm not going to be able to continue to do just because I don't want to burn myself out and all the reasons that, you know, you already know. 
And there would be some tough conversations that happen there. Uh, ultimately, though, you will have to, I shouldn't say have to, you don't have to do anything. Um, I think you're going to want to probably start thinking about what some of those boundaries are. And you'll have, you'll need to, if you want people to respect those boundaries, um, be willing to say no sometimes. I say, hey, this isn't this piece isn't going to happen, and I need help from this person, or I need engagement from this person, and um, and and go from there. So I think in the context of what Bonnie mentioned, those might be some additional practical ways that will help you to frame that and 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 get some movement there. And uh, boy, you know, tough situation, and I, I hope that some of those thoughts are helpful in in getting you started. And um, so we've uh, it looks like we've gotten to the end of the questions, Bonnie. You know, this is episode two hundred eight. And 208 happens to be your favorite number, mm-hmm. ironically, and that this is a Q&A show. Uh, your Twitter ID is Bonnie208, in fact, because of Bonnie that. Bonnie without any, just Bonnie for without anyone any. listening. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And so um, before, we, uh, before we signed off, I thought it would be interesting if maybe you'd be willing to tell your 208 story, because you have a good one. When I was, as early as I can remember, five, six years old, I always wanted to be a teacher. And in fact, my mom would sometimes take us to the teacher supply stores and I'd get to buy the old fashioned grade books with the different lines for each student and then the squares to fill in their scores for everything. And I get to get teacher's editions of various books, which was kind of fun and including even some higher level books that were beyond anything I knew, but just that I could grow into and and learn more about my stuffed animals, of course, were all of my students and my dolls and things. And on my door was the number 208. And side note, Charlie's Angels reference, Charlie's Angels from the 70s, not Charlie's Angels from the 90s or 2000s. I think 2000s. <laughs> the the char- my Charlie Angels reference is that my name was always Miss Monroe. Oh. And there's a Chris Monroe character from the 70s. I don't actually know if there's a Chris Monroe character from the how, new revised And one, how did two is 208 a Charlie's Angels thing or did you just pick 208 at some point when you were a kid and decided I picked it when I was a kid and there's no exp- explanation for why I picked it as a kid, but that has always been my favorite number. When I was in college, I was very disappointed that I was not going to be able to go on to get my fifth year in college to get my teaching credential. And I needed to go work for what I thought at the time was the evil dark world of business. And I thought, hmm. I thought good people are teachers and good people are firefighters. Bad people are in business. Maybe not necessarily bad, but I just didn't see the idealism. I tend to be more of an idealist and I didn't see how the idealist in me was going to be able to fit very well in business. And my mom told me that I would be quite surprised at the impact I'd be able to have and also the impact of what I could learn in that context. And boy, was she ever right. Fast forward to, I worked in the franchise industry for more than a decade and then started doing some consulting and a little bit of teaching, but never full-time teaching. And when I got my first teaching opportunity, it was for the school I'm at now. And it was a, it's a small private faith-based school. They don't, if you look at like the pay scales, it goes like the large research institute and the large research institutions. And it goes all the way down to community colleges, actually pretty good and great benefits. And and then all the way at the very, very bottom are the kinds of institutions where I teach. And that was actually when Dave and I were, were we newly married or we were thinking about it? We were newly married and you had a great job uh, as a manager of organizational development. Mm -hmm. 
and we're trying to decide if you were going to yeah. take, it was a pay cut to yeah. go. It was a big one, in fact. Um, and to I, go. I did kept, kept thinking about, I just need some sort of a sign, some sort of a sign that I'm supposed to take this job and take this leap of faith and, and see how the road goes. And I didn't ever get a sign. <laughs> I never got like a kind of a billboard kind of thing. I took the offer. It's still, I was like, mm, not sure if I made the right decision or whatever. And they mentioned to me where my office was going to be. And I walked down the hall and many of you listening already know where the story is going, but I looked up at the nameplate that was there and it said office 208. And I sat down on the little tiny stool that they have throughout the hallway there and just began to weep, called my mom and told her the story. And of course, she, she's always all these years from back as a five and six year old, that has always been my favorite number. So people like random, what's your favorite number? 208, what? <laughs> Most people think seven or 11. <laughs> Why is it 208? And it does tie to my passion for teaching. And it's just so fun. I felt like I had a, a, I'm not a superstitious person kind of thing, but I felt like I had a little sign of like, this is, this is going to be great. And it has been great. And now I'm starting my 10th year full time of teaching and still just feel as passionate about teaching as ever. So I, I really, it really just is the special way of just reminding me that from very early on, we get these clues about some of the gifts that we have in our strengths. And it's so fun when we're able to use them in our careers. I remember you telling me you told that story at the first faculty retreat you're at because they have, they have all the new faculty members get up and speak in front of the faculty and say why they, uh, you know, just a little bit about their story. And you told that and people loved it. I, I wish I could have been there that day. And it it was, I I wanted to you to share that story, one, because it's episode 208. So you have to start the story. <laughs> um, but the I'm thinking about that in the context of back to the first question of what Jenga asked mm-hmm. about getting to know people. And I just think it's interesting, like, how just asking something about someone's background or a story about them, or how did you get to where you are today? Um, how much you, I could learn about, if I knew nothing about you, how much I learn about you just from that story? Uh, how much you care about your mom, what an influence she is, how much you love to teach, faith. Uh, I mean, there's so many elements of things that I could uh, understand about you and what motivates you without asking the question, what motivates you? You might have answered that a very different way, but I can listen and understand so much about you. And, uh, and I just think that's, that's like a great thing to do is to ask people to tell their stories and you learn so many wonderful things. Hey, I have a few other pieces of feedback here that have come in in the last month or so that weren't specifically questions, but wanted to share with the community here. Uh, First of all, from uh, my friend Duke up in the Seattle area, Uh, Duke wrote in and reminded me that we had mentioned the term servant leadership on a few recent episodes and that uh, for recent listeners or those who aren't familiar with the term that that may not be a term that would be fully understood by everyone. Uh, So thank you, Duke, for that reminder. I appreciate it very much. And uh, yes, servant leadership is a term that's used extensively in the leadership literature. And I think the best way I can describe what it is, is to uh, read a quote from the person who coined the term, or at least as far as I know, coined the term Robert Greenleaf. He's the main author, at least one of the first authors on servant leadership. Uh, Greenleaf says, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve and serve first, the conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. I I love that perspective. And I like very much thinking about leadership as a service first orientation of that. Our jobs as leaders 
is to serve the people we're leading and the customers, the employees, the volunteers, whoever those people are, that our job first is to serve them. I love that perspective. And we went into great detail on it in episode 137, where I had John Dixon uh, on the show. Speaking of uh, speaking of Washington State, uh, John Dixon's up in a position of leadership with Spokane County. And so a great episode if you're looking for more perspective on servant leadership, coachingforleaders.com slash 137 is where to go for that. Uh, also, uh, just a suggestion for all of us from Rick. Rick had written in recently and just uh, mentioned, he said, I find the word feedback often has a negative connotation for people because of their experiences receiving feedback. A colleague once gave me a great definition for feedback. Feedback is simply information in the present about something in the past that may affect my future. And he says, for example, if you said, Richard, I loved your workshop. Next time you facilitate it, if you could spend more time on X, that would be really impactful. Uh, And he goes on to say, you haven't used the word feedback and it's exactly what you've given me. I say it may affect my future because I have to choose whether or not I use that feedback that was given. In that essence, it truly is a gift. And I think that's absolutely uh, true, Rick. So thank you so much for that suggestion as well. It reminds me a bit of the feed forward model from Marshall Goldsmith. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Marshall was on a recent episode. I don't think we talked about feed forward, uh, but that's a really important concept. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you're looking for a better way to solicit feedback, feed forward is a great way to do that. And then also uh, another fabulous episode, if you haven't listened to it before, is episode 143 with Sheila Heen. And she made the suggestion of when you're asking for feedback to say this, what's one thing you see me doing or failing to do that holds me back? That's a really powerful question. And I know it because I've asked it a few times to clients since she said that on the show. And I've heard some really valuable things. So again, that's what's one thing you see me doing or failing to do that holds me back. Sheila Heen, episode 143. And then finally, I'll wrap it up with a quote from Aaron Rigg. Aaron, thank you so much for sending this in. Aaron said, results develop credibility, which develops trust, which ultimately develops freedom to spend time on developing others into results-oriented leaders. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks, Aaron, for listening, and thanks for sending in that quote. And I am always uh, thrilled to hear feedback and to get your feedback and input as well, too. Comments, questions, or feedback for future Q&A shows or just in general are always welcome at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, uh, especially those of you uh, who are military or former military uh, or veterans. I hope you'll take a moment to Give us some uh, advice on that one question for this episode. The show notes for this episode are at coachingforleaders.com slash 208. And the best way to get questions in coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And one other quick announcement before I let you go. I know we're running a little longer here than normal, um, but I did want to uh, make a brief mention. I've uh, Over the last six months, a year especially, I've had a number of people have reached out to me over email uh, or on the website and have asked, you know, is there, uh, are there other resources through, uh, through you and through the podcast for getting, uh, getting coaching, for connecting with other members of the Coaching for Leaders community, forums, you know, other things that would be available for people who listen to the show and really want to do more with what they're learning? And the answer to that, for a whole lot of reasons, has always been no, uh, at least formally. 
That answer is about to change. In fact, uh, later this week, I'm going to be sending out an announcement about an inaugural program I'm beginning for a limited number of Coaching for Leaders community members. And one of those people may be you. So if that is of interest to you, watch your inbox on Thursday. If you already received the weekly leadership guide, I will be sending out a special announcement this coming Thursday. So you'll get the normal guide on Wednesday. Thursday special announcement coming. Uh, So watch your inbox for that. And if you're not already uh, getting the leadership guide each week, you can still get access to that and get the announcement on Thursday. It will be at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is how to get on the leadership guide. And don't worry if you're listening to this after Thursday and you missed the announcement, uh, there will be more information coming in the future. But right now, uh, just a special announcement for people who have already been a part of the guide or hop on this week. So watch for that on Thursday. And speaking of the guide, it is delivered on Wednesdays normally and includes my thoughts, recommendations, and resources on articles, podcasts, and books that I think will help your development between the shows. And it also includes the weekly show notes. So if you're looking for a great way to follow up between the shows on the resources we've talked about, including all the links we talked about in this episode definitely hop on to that because it'll be helpful to you. And when you join the weekly leadership guide, you'll get instant access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries for me on what I think the value is of each one of those books. And all of them are just such gems as far as helping people to improve themselves, not only to lead better, to lead yourself better too. And that's where leadership really begins for all of us. You can get access to all that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And you'll get the leadership guide on Wednesday. And this week, you'll get the announcement coming a day later on Thursday as well. I hope you have a fabulous week. And thanks again to Bonnie for taking the time to join us and for the great story to finish it off. Have a fabulous week. And I look forward to talking with you again next week. Take care.